Uh, my name is Doug Reeside. I, my wife Marilyn and I have been attending this church for about almost exactly 13 years um, now. And um, so Peter asked me if I could speak um, a month or two ago, maybe two months ago. And I, I, unlike a lot of the times when I speak here, when anyone speaks here, there wasn't a particular passage to look at or a particular theme. I was just asked to speak about whatever God laid on my heart. Um, and so I've approached today with some fear and trembling. Um, I, uh, I know that every time God's word is taught, it is a sacred act. And Paul commands Timothy, uh, the person he's kind of mentoring, to handle the word of truth correctly. And I think of a chef maybe instructing a new employee how to handle a particularly sharp knife. Um, James warns us that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I do feel the solemnity of this most times I teach, but I think I'm especially conscious of these warnings and instructions today because as I struggled to, speak, uh, to think about what I was going to speak about today, I felt pretty clear that this was the message, but I also was pretty clear that I don't do anything that I'm talking about. Um, so in sincere humility, I need to confess that I literally don't practice what I'm about to preach and I need your help in obeying this message. I'm also actually though a little bit excited about this because as I thought about this message, I think, I think it is possible that today if we have enough faith and are willing to obey what I think God is telling us, we could actually, this is one of those sermons where we could actually witness miracles that come out of it, um, in the, it today and maybe in the coming weeks. In, um, right before Jesus was crucified in one of the last lessons that he gave to his disciples, he said to them, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In fact, he will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And I know this is a difficult passage for a lot of us and um, Anyone, uh, most of us probably have had experience of asking for something in Jesus's name and not receiving it. So we have to figure out a way to understand this promise as being based on some conditions that I think theologians have talked about for years. But I do think um, there is a way of thinking about it as Jesus sort of signing off on particular kinds of requests. At work, when someone on my team needs something, printer toner, a new laptop, money to go to a conference, whatever, they submit a request using our, our requisition system and the request goes to me. And if there's funds available and I sign off, the request is almost always granted because I added my name to it. Um, I think that in some way, this is a fair metaphor for Jesus, what Jesus is promising, that Jesus will sometimes add his name to the request and it will be granted. And so today, as an experiment in faith, um, I'm going to ask you to do something, but actually I'm gonna ask the ushers to come forward with, with some paper, because I'm gonna ask you to write something down. I'm gonna ask you to think about, and you can think about it now as the paper is being passed out, how your life would change if uh, Jesus said he was going to give you $25,000 to spend on something or some things. And I'll explain that amount in a minute, but say it's $25,000. Now, as you're thinking about that, Try not to think about spending this, this free miracle money on things that you could do with your present resources. If you, um, if, you haven't, uh, if you have money in your bank account and you actually could spend this money, you could already do the thing that you're thinking of, uh, but you just would rather have the funds in your savings, uh, maybe try to think of something else. 
Yeah, so try to think of what you would do if you had uh, $25,000 that would in some way change your life. So when you have something, uh, something that you would, and you don't have to spend the full amount, it can be any amount up to $25,000. When you have something that you would think of, that, and this should be something that would really make a big difference in your life. It's not just 5 billion Tootsie Rolls or whatever, but um, something that would make, well, maybe that would make a huge difference, but um, yeah, something that would make a huge difference in your life. And when you have something, write it down. And um, maybe as you're, as you're writing, ask Jesus to provide this thing. Okay, you can keep thinking about it during the rest of the sermon. Um, but I know that maybe for some of you, um, it's been hard, it was hard for you to think of something to write down. Uh, for some of us, we're trained not to ask for material things, especially in the context of church. And it can feel greedy or materialistic, materialistic or just crass to admit that we want or need material things. And I do think it's worth practicing contentment. Paul tells Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, food and clothing, we'll be content with that. But at the same time, as we've lived these, as we live these lives that we live in the places that we've been placed by God, we find material blessings beyond food and clothing open up certain opportunities for us. We heard some of the kids talk about it today, a car, a home large enough to host guests, money to visit friends and family, even funds to nourish our souls uh, with art can help us enjoy God's blessings and share them with others. Um, on the other hand, realistically, I know that many of us in this particular congregation are by global and even national standards wealthy. We live in one of the wealthiest counties in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. And by the, maybe by the standards of our neighbors in this area, we might feel a little impoverished, but compared to the neighborhoods, even in which I grew up uh, and where I went to college and even grad school, this is a very wealthy area. Um, so today I, I wanted to talk about money and what we do with it. It's one of Jesus's favorite topics and his lessons on wealth and poverty. And I, I say this very sincerely, they, they terrify me. Jesus talks a lot about the treatment of the poor as a basis for the way that God will judge us. And the New Testament writers follow his example. I, the, I titled the sermon, if you saw in the, in the bulletin, um, Preference for the Poor, was, which is a Jesuit idea that it seems like, and, and Peter uh, said it very well in the children's sermon, but it does seem like throughout the entire Bible, there's this idea that there is some sort of way in which the, the poor are preferred in God's um, plans. Uh, and that, and the Jesuits uh, argue from that, that then as we're setting policy in all kinds of different ways, we should think about the poor first as we're setting um, whatever policy we set. Um, I'm not really going to go down that direction though, but that explains the title of the sermon, which I sort of departed from as I tried to think about what to talk about. Um, so yeah, so in, uh, and again, Peter actually uh, already told the story, but in Luke 16, right after the passage that we heard read, uh, Jesus tells the story of the rich man who lives in splendor and of the beggar named Lazarus who sits at his gate, the rich man's gate, begging for table scraps. When the two die, Lazarus goes to be with Abraham at his feast, and the rich man goes to Hades and is in torment. The rich man now longs not even just for table scraps, but just for a drop of water from Lazarus's finger. And the rich man is told that he received all the good things that he was due in life 
and it's now Lazarus's turn to be comforted. The basis for the rich man's punishment seems to be mostly based on the selfish use of his wealth. Um, and then there's the story of those who call on Jesus, on the, uh, Jesus Lord on the day of judgment, but who he casts away because he says he never knew them. They never fed the hungry, clothed the naked, or fed the sick or imprisoned. And Jesus says um, that he will say to them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And when a rich man, a rich young ruler, asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus first tells him to keep the law, and then he says he has done so, and Jesus says that he must give all he has to the poor. And when the rich man walks away, Jesus's sort of interpretation of this is that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Um, and that with God, all things are possible, but it's, it's hard. And there are many other examples like this in the Sermon on the Mount and in Jesus's other teachings. And I've sometimes heard sermons claim that these are pre-gospel teachings, part of the old covenant, which sort of proves that no one could keep, uh, uh, keep the law. But I, I question whether the gospel writers wanted to document the life of our Lord after his ascension, would have spent their time documenting teaching that either didn't apply anymore or um, that we're not somehow supposed to obey. But, but even so, the importance of caring for the poor continues in the rest of the New Testament. When Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem are trying to sort out the theological earthquake they've experienced as the Gentiles are invited into this new Jesus movement, Peter and Paul are called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles seemingly without telling them that they have to obey the laws in the Old Testament. And Paul says that uh, as he went off on his journey, all they said that he had to do was continue to remember the poor. Paul says this is the very thing he was eager to do. And Paul actually tells this story, it should be noted, in the letter to the churches in uh, uh, Galatia, in the book of Galatians, which is the book that's most often used uh, to emphasize the, the grace-based, faith-based, no works uh, part of our, our faith. Um, so Paul is saying, even in this context, remembering the poor is super important. The dangers of wealth is also a common theme in the book of James. I'm just kind of showing that this is not just in, Jesus, not just in the Gospels, not just before Jesus' death. People in the Bible, after Jesus uh, has ascended, uh, we continue to get these messages. James writes, now listen, you rich people, weep, mourn, and wail because of the misery coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion testify against you and eat your flesh with fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Um, but earlier in James, uh, and in less dramatic ways, he warns the rich who might not even be oppressing anyone um, that uh, they should share resources with those who don't have any. He writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, I keep warm I, and well fed, I wish you well, but he does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And we often in this, again, traveling through the Bible in the book of Revelation, um, in the letters that Jesus gives to the seven churches, to the letter to the church in Laodicea, 
which is the church that has the lukewarmness that makes Jesus want to vomit, um, he explains what this lukewarmness is uh, in the very next passage. He says, um, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and uh, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. Those of you who have looked into this probably know that, that Laodicea was into eye balm and so he's referencing their industry. Um, growing up in evangelical churches in the 1990s, I was fed a pretty steady diet of amazing grace, um, which was great uh, and important, and it is part of the Bible as well. Salvation is God's free gift, and faith uh, in him is what is necessary to receive this free gift. And the Bible, as I said, the Bible teaches this, but what is this faith? What does it mean when Jesus says, whosoever believeth, believeth in him, that is, in Jesus, will receive eternal life? The Greek word pistos for, used for faith and belief has the idea of putting a confidence in someone, accepting what they say is true, to say that I, um, I trust what this person says and I'm going to essentially uh, follow their, their teaching. And if Jesus told us all these things, I kind of assume that putting our faith, believing in him, believing what he says is true, means that we would act on uh, it in order to avoid the kind of judgments he warns us about. In fact, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, um, there's even a kind of riff on this. The rich man, while he's in Hades after he's refused the drop of water, asks Abraham um, to send a messenger to his brother, his brothers, so that they might escape the place where he's tormented. Abraham responds, well, they have the prophets and Moses. Let, it, let them listen to them, the brothers. And the man in, in Hades says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to the dead, uh, from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to the rich man, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Will we listen? And even if this isn't ultimately our care for the poor, isn't ultimately a salvation issue, um, the nature of our situation in eternal life seems to be in some way defined by how we uh, treat the poor. Paul hints in 1 Corinthians that in the final judgment, not every experience of salvation will be equivalent. He writes, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. We have to start with that foundation. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day brings it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it burns up, the builder will suffer loss. He will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And so how we treat the poor seems to be of eternal significance. And like I said, I'm not really doing very much about this. And even now, teaching on this, I fear I will be judged more harshly for uh, that fact. But let's assume today that I want to obey. What does it mean to care for the poor? I feel like this question is maybe something like, how can I be a faithful follower of Jesus that has so many answers that are so dependent on each individual's context and, and time? Um, but I'll share a couple of the things I've been thinking about. My first question as I try to figure out how I might possibly obey this command is, well, who are the poor? When you think of the poor, what image comes to mind? 
You think of orphans in Africa and India with flies buzzing around and looking up at the camera in a World Vision ad. Do you think of the guy sleeping under the blanket in the doorway in the Bronx or even on the Upper West Side? Do you think of a single mom on a motorized scooter at Walmart in Kentucky with seven children walking next to her as she counts her food stamps? I think all of these people are poor and maybe the people that we're called to care for. Um, but I, I think, it, anyway, it's even more diverse than that. In 2020, and I've mentioned this before, one of the musicals, uh, for those that you don't know, I'm a big musical theater fan, uh, one of the musicals that came out during the pandemic uh, theater, Zoom theater era, was a one-person musical monologue about Mother Teresa as if she's speaking from heaven. And in one uh, song, she says, you say the poor like they're one thing, like they're a theory and a herd, and not a people that outnumber you, not individual lives. With crazy stories, moms and uncles, similar struggles, similar, same intentions, different means. How many people have you alchemized to numbers? How many voices did you mute behind the comfort of your screens? I feel like the question, who is the poor, might be something like the question, who is my neighbor, that we're told a guy who is seeking to justify himself asked Jesus um, after he said the most important command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan who rescues a Jewish man who was beaten up on the side of the road. And several religious leaders of his own community ignore him. And I think the point is that we're supposed to help those in need that we encounter as we have ability. I think the call um, to care for the poor is in fact really just a subset of that larger command, love your neighbor as yourself. In the letter of 1 John, um, the author who tells us that God is love and that everyone who loves knows God and anyone that does not love does not know God, he urges his readers, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. So it's all about, I think caring for the poor is all about loving your neighbor. And in fact, if our care for the poor is not motivated by love, it's actually worthless and possibly even damaging. In the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, if I give all I have to the possessed of the poor and give my body over to the flames that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul further explains how to give in 1 Corinthians 9 as he's collecting money for the poor at the church in Jerusalem who were experiencing a famine at the time. He says, so this is his instructions on how to give. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all, these, in all things and at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge your harvest, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity, and, uh, and through your generosity, you will result, that will result in thanksgiving to God. Part of obeying the commands to care for the poor, I think, requires us to first begin by drawing on the love uh, of God that he provides to us and sincerely channel that love to others. Giving reluctantly or under compulsion can be hurtful to those who receive the gift. And so in fact, I think a lot of this sermon may be like Christianity grad school level or something. Like it's, you have to begin with that love and then uh, figure that out and then begin to channel that out uh, to people and to the poor. 
Um, yeah, uh, part of the obeying the commands to care for the poor means first drawing on that love. Giving reluctantly or under compulsion can be hurtful to those who receive the gift. For uh, I certainly wouldn't want to receive a gift from someone who was just trying to escape hell or win a better place in heaven. Um, this is part of uh, why I think what um, I'm trying to sort out right now is in line with what the Amazing Grace story that I learned as a child. We can do nothing on our own, actually, and faith in God makes possible the miracle of love that enables us to miraculously figure out how to give generously. John tells us in that uh, first letter of, of John, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if you don't feel able to give in love, what are some ways to connect to the love of God that allows us to truly love? I think the first thing to know is to get to know Jesus and experience that love. And I think many of us have at least had some experience where we've started to do that already. And if you haven't, I apologize, the sermon really isn't for you because it assumes a lot of things have happened in your life that may still be in the future. Um, if you want to start that journey, please talk to me after the service or anyone else who seems to be in leadership. And I'm sure we'd love to tell you about what we've experienced. Um, but if you feel that you love God, but you aren't yet loving others or the poor sincerely, um, or that you're not able to give generously, then maybe we can start with that story of the moneylender that we heard at the beginning of this um, the service. He is generous to the poor because he knows he will be among them soon. And he wants to make friends. And most importantly, he doesn't do it with his own gifts uh, or with his own money, but with his master's money. And I think taking this parable too literally or beyond its intended scope is dangerous. But I do think it's helpful to remember that all we have is actually God's and that our generosity is in the end just giving, shifting his money around to do his work. We are that steward. And, you know, maybe that's too hard. Um, maybe you don't actually believe or, you know, down deep down in your heart that your money is actually God's. I have to say that I have a hard time believing that in any really sincere way um, most of the time. I mean, I know it, but I don't believe it. Um, so sometimes I find reframing um, my concept of uh, resources in that in terms of Proverbs 19 a little easier. In Proverbs 19, um, one of the Proverbs is, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. It's a reminder that God wants to care for the poor. God, God does. He doesn't, you know, he, we may not, but God does. And he's chosen us to use, uh, to, he's chosen us to work his will. A week or two ago, I was at a theater with a friend, a show, and we both checked our coats at the coat check. When I went to pick mine up, I took out my wallet and I realized I didn't have any cash. And of course, they don't take credit cards at the coat check. So um, I uh, asked my friend for a few dollars to uh, tip the coat check attendant. And I've recently thought of this uh, when on my commute, uh, there's a guy who stands on the side of the road at a light that I'm often stopped at before I entered the city. Like Lazarus, he literally sits at my gate um, asking for scraps. I didn't used to really give anything to him, but recently, if I happened to have cash, I sometimes give him a little bit, imagining that Jesus is asking me if I can lend him a few bucks so he can take care of this guy, just like I asked for money to tip the coat check attendant. It may not be the most loving way of thinking of it, but I do feel happier when I think, hey, uh, Jesus wanted you to have this. Now, I, I should be say, say, I've not actually said that out loud, and I maybe someday I'll feel convicted too, but I, I haven't yet. Um, 
as a quick side note, what I've also noticed is when I roll down my window and give a few dollars or whatever, uh, the windows behind me often sometimes open and people start giving money as well. Giving is contagious. Finally, I think it may also be helpful to remember that Jesus said that whatever we do for um, even those that we have very little empathy for, we end up doing for him. I might struggle to love someone, but if I can see Jesus in them, I hope that I love Jesus enough to be generous to him. When Mary broke her bottle of perfume on Jesus's, uh, to, and poured it on Jesus's feet, Judas snarked that it could have been given to the poor. And Jesus rebukes him saying that the poor will be with them always, but he will be with them for only a little while. But in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us he is with us always in another sense. And part of the way that that happens is in, in his incarnation in the poor, in the, those in prison, in the sick. And all of this takes some psychological reframing to understand the spiritual truth that may be hidden from what our brains um, process by what we see here and touch. So maybe the best way to begin to learn how to give in love is to give to those we actually love. And I think I can say with honesty that I do feel love for all of you. In Galatians, Paul writes, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So maybe that's the place to start. We can anoint the feet of the body of Christ with our resources. At the beginning of today's sermon, I asked you to write down what you would do if Jesus gave you $25,000. I picked that number because based on about 10 minutes of shoddy internet research, it seems to be about what that uh, pure nard would have cost in today's um, thing. It's, it's the... Um, the living wage, it's the uh, annual wage of a day laborer in Israel right now, says the internet. Um, so I'm going to propose an exercise. If you really couldn't think of a way, or if it was hard for you to think of a way that $25,000 would change your life, maybe for the purpose of this exercise, you should think about what amount of money you might be willing to pour on the body of Christ in the form of your brothers and sisters here. Keep in mind, you don't have to decide just yet. Um, we'll get to where you might decide. If on the other hand, if you immediately had something, you knew how $25,000 could change things for you, um, I do ask that you write it down, make sure that you've written it down. Um, in a minute, I'm gonna ask the ushers to pass the offering plates, and I'm gonna ask everyone to put their paper in the a basket, even if it's blank. Um, and if you want, if you've decided you don't really wanna write it down, you can cross out whatever. Um, and Barbara, and Barbara alone will take these papers and she's going to post a list of the needs um, that are on these papers, but without names. Um, we can all take a look at this list and see if there is any needs that we have the resources to meet. And I know that if you have something down, you may be wanting to scratch it out right now um, because it's comfortable. It's really, really uncomfortable to ask for something. And I understand that by the world standards, not many of us are poor on the level of global poverty. Um, but I'm still urging you to put something in if there was something that came immediately to mind. I think it's sort of like first aid training. Um, when you're doing first aid training or CPR, someone needs to play the person in need and someone needs to play the caregiver. Um, so I'm asking those of you who are able to play the role of the person in need to practice this vulnerability, to show love to those who are playing the caregiver and practicing generosity. And maybe someday you'll be able to, you know, we'll switch roles. Jesus says the believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So those of you who are in this high position, I beg you to help others practice generosity. And 
As a final thought, a few of you may be motivated by fear or an impulse to give even beyond your means. Um, we've been talking a lot about scary last judgment things. And while there may be super expert levels of generosity um, after we really have matured, where we're, we are called to give all we have to the poor, as it seems like the rich young ruler was, I don't think that's likely for today's experiment. Um, remember what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Our desire is not that others may be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As, is, as it is written, those who, the one who gathered did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Talking about the manna, gathering the manna in the, in the desert. So I'm going to ask the ushers to gather the papers. Um, I have to say, I'm terrified about what will happen here. There's so many ways this could go wrong, um, but I'm trusting that God will take care of it. Uh, and I think it's also possible that we might see miracles in the next week or so.